It's Tuesday, November 28th. This is Catherine Cruz. Lala for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. The Association for Land Surveyors says mainland organizations who have experience with wildfires are sharing lessons learned about what could add to delays for rebuilding on Maui. We'll hear why Lahaina property lines could raise some issues. We'll learn more about exceptional trees as we push to expand our tree canopy across the state. Why are so few trees being nominated for the honor? And how the Maui wildfires impacted production on a film project that debuted last month. We'll share the inspirational story behind Uncle Bully's Surf School. Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Earlier this month, the Hawaii Association for Land Surveyors warned of a potential impact to the rebuilding of homes and businesses on Maui. The association says it's heard from organizations from Paradise, California, and other fire ravaged communities about their experience during recovery efforts. HPR reporter Savannah Harriman Pote joins us to talk about the Maui cleanup efforts and the impact on survey pins usually used to mark property lines. Good morning. Good morning, yes. So this might be familiar to some folks who own property, but what we're really talking about today is those boundary pins, about a foot or so of metal or rebar that are buried in the ground and physically mark the corners of property. These would have been would have survived the fire likely, but they are at risk in phase two of the cleanup of getting disrupted as the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the folks that it are contracting with go through and dig up soil to get rid of debris and hazardous materials. And without those markers, it's extremely hard to accurately measure the boundaries of someone's property. Yeah, you have to hit the whole property resurveyed again. Exactly. And that could cause problems down the line for Lahaina residents who want to rebuild. So so the Hawaii Association of Land Surveyors has been really <laughs> kicking up a storm about this issue. They've been in, cont- in contact with several government agencies at the local, state, and federal level trying to raise awareness of this issue. Meyer Cummins is one of them. And when you start wiping out pins, you know, not, necess- not deliberately, obviously, but even accidentally, or disturb where they originally were, it becomes that much more difficult to figure out where those boundary points are supposed to be. Um, and in a lot of ways, the boundaries in the ground represent the actual survey. Um, if you destroy them, you're sort of destroying people's understanding of where their property was. Even though we have paper records dictating where boundaries are supposed to be, what's on the ground actually is what's held. Yeah, so those are critical to people having a sense of what divides your property from my property. And that's going to get really, really tricky, especially when you consider the scale of devastation and rebuilding that's going to take place in densely populated Lahaina. So I did reach out to Dawson. They're the organization that's contracted with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And they have teams who are going out right now in phase one to kind of identify what the process of debris clearing is going to be for individual properties. They're using TATS map 
uh, key numbers and addresses, as well as a GIS-based mapping system to ensure that each individual property is identified. However, um, I reached out to them. They have not confirmed, but as of yet, it's not clear if they actually have land sur surveyors out who are going and identifying those key boundary markers. And so what's the plan? Would they just somehow put in those orange flags that we often see? Yeah, there are a couple of different ways to do it. Um, having land surveyors in the area to walk around with folks and put in exactly those orange pins roughly where they are so that when folks are coming in with bulldozers and heavy machinery, they can avoid those areas. That would be the easiest one. Um, there are, would be more sophisticated methods, but then again, it's that trade-off of time. How much time can we allot to this process um, without significantly de delaying the, rebuild, um, the rebuilding process? Meyer Cummins um, says that if these markers aren't protected though, the situation could get very, very messy for property owners who are trying to figure out whose land is whose in a couple of months. What I've seen in the past is when you get boundary overlaps and gaps, people have to go to court to settle these things. And that costs money and that takes a lot of time. And we don't want to see a situation where the people of Lahaina come back are ready to rebuild, getting their permits, getting their loans. Suddenly they've got a wall that's in the wrong lot. Suddenly multiple parties are claiming this stretch of, you know, one foot wide. Um, then they've got to sue for that. You know, they've got to settle that in court. And that's just an extra burden for them. So it can get very messy for time and cost. Yeah, we often hear how, you know, somebody has a fence that is encroached on somebody else's property. So there's a lot of that messy stuff. Exactly. And that's very common Hawaii. And as Meyer said, that those disputes can draw out. And that's just when they're between two landowners. This is between, this is about thousands of residential and commercial properties. And what we're doing, what we have what we might accidentally do is rip up the survey fa um, fabric that figures out where all these properties are. And in Lahaina, square footage is extremely valuable. So the difference of a couple of feet on either side might mean a lot to people. It might require a lot of investment of time and money to figure out where those boundaries are. And in Maui, we only have a handful of licensed surveyors. If you're licensed in Hawaii, you can work anywhere, but it's really helpful to have people who are familiar with the area. So those folks are already going to be in high demand, along with contractors and everyone else who is involved in the rebuilding process as we go forward, trying to get folks back to their homes. So if there is a demand for these surveyors, you might see people from Oahu or other islands going over to help out? Hopefully, yes. Um, and Meyer and the other local land surveyors have been in contact with FEMA, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the state and the county. They're really anxious to help, but this is new territory. It's still somewhat uncommon for a wildfire to burn through such a densely developed area. And in fact, this came to their attention because other communities who have experienced this, place like Paradise, California, communities in Colorado, and communities in Canada, reached out to the state and land surveyors here and said, hey, you got to get ahead of this. This is Craig Cluett. He works in for the office of the governor as a data scientist. And he says that how we approach this issue in Lahaina is going to be kind of a test case for how we deal with disaster moving forward. Yeah, we do have examples with the paradise and campfires in California. That's We have a couple of articles that we've been referencing in our discussions. And they they actually reached out to us before we even asked them, saying, "Hey, you got to <laughs> take care of this now because it's going to be a problem." Maui is going to be a test case that it's so developed. It's an old community, you know, back you know, 200 years almost. There's just a lot of issues, a lot of property, a lot of history, all condensed into one little area. 
So one of those test cases was in Alberta, um, which had a fire in 2016. It burned roughly 1,500 structures. Um, over 80,000 people evacuated when the fire hit. And they started their rebuilding process and actually issued about a third of the rebuilding permits, um, 400 or so, before they realized the extent to which they were going to need to resurvey the land. And so that was an instance where they actually had to pause and then kind of retroactively dig through all of these property lines to figure out where people's boundaries were in order to move forward. So folks from that community were, were one of the ones who got in touch with land surveyors to say, hey, we really, you really need to put barriers in place to deal with this now or it's going to be a huge, huge headache later. And that kind of gets to this bigger question of this is likely not the only disaster that we'll see um, that impacts one of our communities here in Hawaii. So how do we make our survey processes more resilient before the next disaster? If yeah. not Lahaina, I mean the, the next one and the next one. we got to have a plan at some point. we we got to be able to account for all these different concerns. Um, that way when something like Lahaina happens again, we're, we're not all scrambling. Like, okay, let's We've done this, we got this experience, we know we need to have a plan, let's put this plan together. So I'm just curious though, you know, like uh, after the intense heat of the fires, you know, how much of those pins in the ground survived? Right, that is a question. Um, because they're buried under the ground, they're usually a bit more protected. And that's what they found in Alberta, Canada. They said explicitly in a report that they issued that it was not the fire that destroyed those pins. It was the heavy machinery that was involved in putting the fire out and then cleanup of the debris afterwards. So this is where we're going to lose a lot of those indicators um, if we don't mark them. Yeah, well, a lot of survey work ahead potentially. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Just another piece in this very complicated puzzle of how we move forward in Lahaina. Yeah, and the added cost potentially of rebuilding. So interesting. But thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you, Catherine. That was HBR Savannah Harriman-Poe talking with us about possible delays with rebuilding efforts in Maui. You can read more of her science and energy stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Lisa Smart, author of Words at the Threshold. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about what we say as we're nearing death. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Lauren Hana Chai, The Five Senses, an exploration of Korean-American identity, loss, and healing. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org.
that big Navy plane sitting in the water at the edge of Kaneohe Bay? Well, for our reality check today, we connect with Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henre. Hi, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. And you were out there looking at that plane yesterday. That's right. There was a group of local media that uh, had the chance to survey the scene um, out on the peninsula there at the Marine Corps base, uh, Hawaii, um, where the, the plane actually skidded off the runway. Just it, yesterday, it was, a, it was a week. It had been a week uh, since that crash. And so we got a better idea, even as they investigate exactly what happened, you could kind of see the scene and, and how it had played out. That plane is is maybe 200 feet off the edge of the peninsula and the edge of the runway for that matter and it's kind of leaning to its right in um you know in the waters just just pretty close to shore you know when you hear that a, a plane had skidded off the runway and into the bay you think oh wow um you know how far out it's actually you know it's it's pretty close to the shore but mm-hmm. in any case you know the 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 marines and the navy they they you know uh, it's a, a week later but they finally kind of caught up, frankly, and we're, we're giving uh, a little more access and transparency to what's going on with that whole situation. Yeah, because, I mean, as you mentioned, it's been a week, and this is the first, really, that we're hearing from them. That's right. I mean, they've, they have been putting out press releases, but those press releases have really focused on you know, the response and the preventative measures. You know, they've been hitting on that. They've been putting booms around the, the plane and that they've been, uh, you know, taking... Uh, imagery, underwater imagery to kind of assess. But the key information was, well, what happened at the point of the crash, whether, you know, any fuel had leaked out into this bay, which is already under a lot of environmental duress from you know, pollution and runoff. And, you know, there are folks at UH that are working really hard and diligently to, um, you know, to work on the, the coral and help them survive there. So, they're just we weren't getting any details as far as the environmental impacts from the 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 military's initial assessment i had actually reached out last week to the department of land and natural resources to see if they could provide any details from their vantage point and you know frankly they didn't have much to say on it either so you had this the situation where for about a week you had a, a plane parked in the bay and you know no real idea of of you know what had actually happened other than the military saying that you know we're, we're taking all of these these measures so there was some community concern and the crew all safe nobody injured uh and they're still investigating uh but yeah the big question now is how do you get this thing out of the water back on the runway that's right and one thing i should stress is that what the, the military did tell us yesterday they did apologize and said you know we, we probably should be more mindful of getting information out. And they stress that to, the, to their knowledge, there was no fuel that actually leaked out of the plane. Uh, they had those booms in place fairly quickly and that they did manage to defuel the the uh, rest of the, there were 2000 gallons of fuel remaining. They got those all out, defueling it from underwater, which had never been done before for that plane. Uh, so yeah, they now they, they're looking at both the investigation and the salvage. And with that salvage, uh, they are it, the, the plane is pretty much intact. You know, they're they're actually looking at whether they can reuse the plane. You know, that it still could be uh, useful and uh, go back into into operation. Uh, but they're looking at basically floating it um, right now. It's resting on a landing gear. It's front landing gear and one of the engines. It's kind of leaning to the side. 
um, on top of coral. So there was mm -hmm. some coral damage, but they're looking at how they can get it out with minimal more damage, float it closer to the to the shore. And they are weighing whether to use a crane um, that could kind of haul it out once you get it close enough to the shore or using special rollers, which are being flown in right now. And you could kind of roll it up, you know, canoe style in some ways um, back onto onto land. And, you know, the, the runway is right there. Yeah, I know. I mean, too bad you can't just put it in reverse, you know, and just say, OK, yeah. back up. Yeah, like a boat, you know. <laughs> yeah, Alexa, uh, reverse this plane, please. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, it's a complicated thing, for yeah, sure. Yeah, very challenging, because, yeah, we've never really had this situation, but it is glaring. It's like it doesn't happen every day, and then, yeah, how do you deal with getting it back where it should be? Right. right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, that was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. You can read that story online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Today, we are picking flowers for lei. The Turk's cap hibiscus is no stranger to lei, given their vibrant red blossoms. Turk's cap, also known as firecracker hibiscus, is native to Mexico and Colombia. It was introduced to Hawaii sometime after 1778, when contact with the West was established. The flowers got their common name because their blooms look like a, turbish, a Turkish turban. The plant reaches heights of about 13 feet, with bright red tubular flowers that measure over 2 inches long. About 90 blossoms are required to make a standard lei, and this hibiscus is rather popular in local gardens for the butterflies it attracts with its nectar-rich blossoms. Although the blossoms never fully open, the advantage is they do not wilt as easily as other hibiscus varieties. So can you tell us why locals call the Turk's cap hibiscus the firecracker hibiscus? And for bonus points, what is the Hawaiian name of this flower? We'll have the answer a little later in the show. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NareedHawaii.com. 
of A Next Fresh Air, The Coded Gaze. We talk with Dr. Joy Boilamwini, who coined the term as a grad student at MIT after discovering that, as a black woman, the facial recognition software she was working on couldn't detect her face until she put on a white mask. Her new book is about the social implications of AI. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. It was back in 1975 that the state passed an act to establish an exceptional tree program. It was thanks to the Outdoor Circle and Kauai's Mokihana Club who lobbied to get special status for trees that the community felt should be protected. We talked to Miles Ritchie this morning. He's the chair of the City and County's Advisory Arborist Committee and the program manager for the Outdoor Circle. We talked to him about the program's past and future. There was a noticeable loss of iconic trees throughout the state due to development. So mid-70s, this is all happening, and it gets passed through, funny enough, uh, actually over in Kauai through an ordinance prior to the statewide um, law that came in, in effect. So Kauai was definitely the, you know, the mover and shaker for getting this passed initially. Um, and then it went statewide, and then trees starting to, uh, started to be nominated from there on out. And the, the thing that people might not realize is that an exceptional tree only has to meet one or more of the seven selection criteria. And those are historic or cultural value, age, rarity, location, size, aesthetic quality, uh, or endemic status. And these trees can be uh, individual specimens. They can be in a grove. Um, the really interesting thing about Hawaii is that we do have these legal protections. So it does address that uh, developmental threat that was initiated in, or noticed in the 1970s. So we do have legal protections on these trees in that they can't be removed unless they're a threat to public safety or they lose their exceptional trait. Um, if something such as the exceptional trait, loss of exceptional trait occurs, then it would go back to what is known as the Arborist Advisory Committee. You can think of it as the Exceptional Tree Committee. Uh, it's one of their main tasks. And they would review it and uh, potentially delist it, but only in extreme uh, circumstances. So that's kind of how it works. But, you know, there was this huge flood of nominations back in the 70s and early 80s, but then things started to drop off. And there is a, well, what happens? Well, because you can't remove these trees, you're almost giving up on private property, at least, a little bit of your, your, your rights, your decisions of what to do on your own property. So it's saying, hey, I'm giving this public, this giant tree or old tree or some kind of whatever trait tree. We are, it's a community good at the end of the day, you know, especially if you have these big, huge trees that are iconic for the area. Uh, people shouldn't have to necessarily just give that up without any kind of incentives or benefits. So in 2004, there is a adjustment to the, the state law that then provided a $3,000 tax deduction, not credit, but deduction every three years per exceptional tree on someone's private property. And that's to offset maintenance costs. Give us a snapshot. How many trees are on this exceptional tree list statewide? It's just over 1,400 statewide. Now, there is a caveat to that. And that's, 
So going through all the four different registries, so, so Kauai, Big Island, Maui, and Oahu, and seeing which ones are listed, there are certain instances. So, for example, two groves on Kauai, four groves on Big Island. Maui actually lists all of their trees, which is fantastic. And then Oahu has nine groves. And these groves actually don't have a specific number associated with the grove uh, because they're so large. So they might say four-mile-long mango in Pahoa down in you know, Big Island. Uh, or, you know, a mile long swamp mahogany over in Kauai, that, that um, tree tunnel going towards Poipu. So the 1400 count is definitely conservative. There's most likely hundreds more within those groves. But yes, 1400 plus of these recognized exceptional trees statewide. Taking out those groves and just looking at what is actually registered and accounted for, the order of least to most exceptional trees uh, for these four counties is 21 on Kauai, only 29 on the Big Island, 421 on Maui, and 935 on Oahu. We can even dive a little deeper into that uh, with the Oahu documentation, which is really interesting. Of those 935 trees, if we look at military property, public property, or private property, there's 606 trees on military property, lots of groves, only 221 on public property, and even less, 108 of these exceptional trees on private property on Oahu. So you can see this breakdown of how it all goes, and it's pretty shocking to some degree that only 108 of these trees are registered on Oahu private properties. Is the countdown, you know, are are there fewer trees these days being designated as exceptional trees? It's a great question. There's definitely been spurts throughout since 1975, but pretty much the last major amount that we saw on Oahu, at least, was in 2000 when 569 trees were added. I'm assuming that is quite a few of those military bases or some of the larger groves that we do have counts for. But even then, the last one was 95 exceptional trees in 2015. And then since then, we had six in uh, 2016, only one in 2019. And that's where we're kind of at right now. And, you know, it's kind of my role as chair of the Arbor's Advisory Committee, which oversee the exceptional tree program, we had uh, 30 nominations from the, the pandemic backlog. And we we're like, okay, this is great. This is amazing. And of those, only three were sent out for recommendation to city council to go for the three reading process, had these officially put on the Oahu registry as exceptional trees. So from those 30, we went down to three. And that was a 30 count for several year backlog. So we're not seeing very many. And the main problem from this is a lot of the initial exceptional trees, which were already old when they were put on the list in the 70s and 80s, are starting to get uh, aged out. They're starting to reach the end of their natural lifespan. So we aren't having this next generation replenishment of exceptional trees to offset what is currently being lost. So it's something we really need to work on in terms of this public education and outreach to let people know that these trees exist and the benefits they provide to not only the private property owners, but to the public, the greater public, and that there's this tax tax deduction to help offset the really expensive cost of maintaining trees. Any private property owner will know that taking care of even a smaller tree can be thousands of dollars. So we need these to help keep our urban forests healthy and make sure we have lots of shade and all the environmental service benefits that we know about, carbon sequestration, stormwater runoff avoidance. We need trees, but there is an expense to maintain them. So the point is, 
if there are these great specimens on someone's property or even on public property, they can be taken care of in the way that they need to be, you know, survive for generations to come. So it might be that people just aren't aware of, of this program and some of the benefits. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. So for the PhD I'm working on, one of the things uh, that came about was working with experts from around the state to see, you know, kind of what the problems are with this program and how can they be remedied. And one of the best quotes was, for every hundred people you would ask on the street, just if you go to Alamoana or something like that, maybe lucky if one out of those hundred would know what the exceptional tree program is, that we even had one, let alone the finer details of how it works. I think that's a major thing that needs to be addressed. For people uh, who might be familiar with trees, you know, the banyan there uh, in Lahaina, uh, that's on the list, right? And and it survived that fire, and, and it, it appears to be rebounding, so that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I believe over at Monolua Gardens here on Oahu, I'm just guessing, but that Hitachi tree there in the middle, you know, I mean, uh, lots of folks are familiar with that, but I don't know. Is that a, on the exceptional tree list? Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. Um, that's kind of the iconic monkey pod specimen, which interestingly enough, a lot of them around the state would be able to get to that kind of really amazing canopy structure with the branches that just hug the ground, which is how it's supposed to go if you were to let them go in nature and just be the tree that they're supposed to be. Um, that's what they would look like. But luckily with the, the gardens, they, they have the space to do so. But yes, that is an exceptional tree. The Indian banyan in Lahaina is one. We are thrilled that it does appear to be rebounding. But yes, yeah, so these are some of the more iconic trees. And I think that's what would have to happen is to say, you know, with this education campaign, here are the ones you know, but here are the ones you might not. And remember, an exceptional tree doesn't have to be the biggest, the oldest. It could also be because of historical or cultural value or rarity, right? So one that comes to mind is that Foster Botanical Gardens, which has over 20 of these exceptional trees. So I highly recommend everyone go check them out. Uh, there's a dwarf lolu palm that's over hundred and 70 years old, and it's maybe seven feet tall tops. And you would notice it if you go there, it's fenced in. And it's just amazing when you walk past it, you would think this is just a you know a relatively young tree, but it's not. And it's just how it happened to be, and it was planted by some famous botanists. So there's all these other components that go beyond just the big majestic trees that we think of, which are a great way to kind of hook people into the program. But then we got to go beyond that and say, there's a lot of candidates out there that are not being recommended and nominated. And we need those to be put on the list for each of the county's arborist advisory committees to review. Where can we send our listeners to if they want to find out about the Exceptional Tree Program? I understand that uh, you folks are also doing some mapping to help people identify where these trees are. Yeah, so um, anybody interested could go to the Outdoor Circles website. So it's um, outdoorcircle.org. On there, we have a whole Exceptional Tree page that has the nomination forms, the contact info for each of the Arborist Advisory Committees, a whole work down of step-by-step how to fill up the nomination form. And then we do have a map, and it's a uh, one we started back in 2014, and for every exceptional tree we could get to, we got its GPS coordinates, height, diameter, crown spread, health, an image of it, and then from there we actually linked it to a exceptional tree reference library that we made that gives uh, fun facts about each of the species that are on the list. One stop shop for anyone who wants to just learn about the exceptional tree program or even nominate uh, a tree that they know about. 
And that was Miles Ritchie, who was with the Outdoor Circle, talking about the exceptional tree program, which provides special protections for single trees or groves of trees, offering tax credits and expertise to help maintain those trees of significant or cultural importance. The last tree added to the list was back in 2019. Think you know of a tree worthy of a nomination? We'll have links to find out more on the conversation page of our website later today. have heard us mention our talkback line at the end of every show. It's where our listeners leave their comments or questions about the interviews we air. They either leave a message or send an email to our talkback inbox. Uh, and uh, every now and then we share those messages on the air with you. Here's one from Ethel, who wrote in after our segment with arborist Kevin Eckert, working to preserve Pompeii's Nanmadal heritage site. Glad to know he's sharing his agricultural expertise in Pompeii to save this historical place. There is a smaller version with canals and everything on a nearby state in the Federated States of Micronesia, also located in the eastern Caroline Islands, Koshrai. How do I know? Well, I was a Peace Corps volunteer on Koshrai from 1966 to 1968. This smaller version of Namadal is located in the main village of Lelu. When I first saw it, the villagers told me of its history, very similar to its big brother and the olden days of a kingdom. It, too, was being invaded by mangroves at the time. Mahalo for all your efforts. It helps folks know more about Micronesia and specifically the different political divisions and cultural aspects of our island neighbors. Your work helps spread positive news about Micronesia. And we also got this after Neil Milner's uh, discussion on aging in politics on the Longview. Hi, my name is Patrick Ferris. I'm calling from the Big Island. I really love your conversation today about age in politics. In particular, one word I'm not hearing a lot of is geriocracy. I have no issue with somebody who is of age, of any age. But when we look at the ruling class in our politics today, whether it be GOP or DNC, they're overwhelmingly not handing the torch off to younger generations. And this has actually skipped a few generations. I want to laugh thinking of an older movie called Wild in the Streets, just thinking that it's almost as though there's a younger generation that is just not being heard, a more progressive generation. Even within the GOP, they are much more progressive than what the GOP is, is showing. Environmental issues that are top of the chart for our generation as that comes down into the actual economics. Thank you very much for your time and thank you for the wonderful show. And thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Record something. Now 
it's time to give you the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we asked you to tell us why the Turk's Cap hibiscus flower has come to be known to locals as the firecracker hibiscus. It's because of its bright red tube-shaped blossoms that resemble a firecracker. In fact, the Hawaiian name, Alo Alo Pahu Pahu, literally translates to hibiscus firecracker. A native of Mexico and Colombia, it has a long history of cultivation in greenhouses as house plants. That's because it has a fast growth rate and is easily transplantable and blooms for months at a time. Some have even used it for bonsai. You've probably also seen it around the state as an ornamental and roadside shrub. Like other hibiscus varieties, the flowers may be eaten in salads or dried to make a flavorful tea. Gardening enthusiasts are also fans because the nectar-rich blossoms are a favorite of butterflies. And local kids who've been known to pick the flowers and lick the sweet juice off the tail end. We had no winners today, but that's today's quiz. And if you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, a story about what some people call piracy, but not the kind of pirates you're thinking about. It's everywhere. It is possibly your kids' schools, could be your employer, could be the mortgage on your house. It's everywhere. How worried should we be about the degree to which private equity is shaping the economy? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, managing water pipelines using satellite technology to help detect leaks and preserve water. Learn more at boardofwatersupply.com. Uncle Bully's Surf School is a documentary short film that focuses on Lahaina surf instructor Robert Bully Cotter and the impact he has on homeless children in the area with his surfing camps. Husband and wife filmmakers Todd Soliday and Leah Warshawski shot it during the pandemic and finished it earlier this year. Here's a clip from the film. Let's all go to our surfboards, get our leashes on, and we're going to paddle down together. Please, let's all go down together, okay? Yeah. Excellent job. Alright. Alright, we're almost at our little surf spot, Dorothy. Now as we paddle out here, you guys can see some shallower coral. That's where the wave is going to lift up and give us energy to catch it. Corals are so important for us too. They give us 70% of the air we breathe. I always thought the trees did it. All right, come on to the side Violet, and let's go ahead and sit up and get ready for the wave. When I first met Violet, she was very introverted and quiet. She wouldn't look me in the eye 
When I first met her, she said maybe a handful of words. It was like, I know she was scared. You know, and, I, and that's understandable because surfing can be a scary place in the ocean. You see the waves starting to approach. Let's get ready. If you want to paddle through it, you can paddle through it. You don't have to go. I want to go. like the nose is coming in the water grab behind your rib cage here and then lift really high up so that you guys don't steer that board anymore this is the way yes wait for it before you go breathe and relax your mind yeah. all right let's go ahead and time for it. feel what you need to feel and then working through it she came out of her shell it was a whole different person and it was fun to see the light come on within her to see this transformation because it starts off as just a surf lesson but it ends up a life lesson nice you know, that short film was submitted to the Hawaii International Film Festival and other festivals around the country. Then the Lahaina fire happened, and it became part of the story. In a rare move, HIF allowed the directors to update the film. Uncle Bully Surf School debuted as the opening film at last month's festival. The Conversations Russell Subiono talked with co-director Leah Warshawski about the experience. Were you still in production when the fires happened? How did it impact you? Well, we started filming during COVID lockdowns. And we thought we were done with the film in February this year. We actually finished the film. It was about 30 minutes. We started submitting to film festivals. We got into a couple of film festivals. We won an award at a film festival. And then August 8th changed everything. Yeah. And, you know, those fires in Lahaina burned down the entire town. It, it decimated 505 Front Street, which is where we filmed almost the entire movie. A lot of the families in our film lost their homes. The kids lost their schools. Bully and his wife lost their home and his business. And we were on Maui by August 10, because we were actually camping when the fires happened. On the mainland, came back to Maui right away to help and just thought, you know what? we need to pick up the cameras again. There's more happening here. There's more to this story. And so for the last couple of months, we've been filming and just refinished the film 10 minutes longer, just in time for HIF. 
And, and in the film, you mentioned how two of the kids in the surf school, Titan and Josiah, they escaped Lahaina with members of your crew. Can you talk about that? Titan and Josiah were, are friends with one of our producer's son. And so they were over at their house before, gosh, I think it was actually August 7. It was the night before the fires and they were over at the house. Our producer was showing them the film for the first time. And so they watched the 30 minute version of the film. And the next day the fires happened and they were able to get out of Lahaina with our team. And we just found out recently that Titan and Josiah are actually with their family. They were in foster care. They're back with their family living on Lanai. And we're so happy to hear that, (laughs) hear that they're all together again. If I remember right, you have to submit your film to HIF like in the summer. And if it's accepted, it screens during the festival in late October or November. So when you added the 10 minutes to the film, did you have to apply to HIF for special permission to resubmit the film? Film festivals, that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) But we've we've done hundreds in the last, you know, 20 years. We've been to hundreds of film festivals. So, you know, I always I just want to give a shout out to HIF every chance that I can, because after August 8 happened, there was one film festival that called us and said, how can we help? What can we do? And that was HIF. And I think Anderson called me August 10 or August 11 and said, first of all, are you guys okay? Second of all, what can we do to help amplify this film? They had only seen the 30 minute version, but I posted an update on our Film Freeway account that said, we're going back and filming more to this story. He read that and then gave me a call right away and just said, tell us what you need. And I said, well, how about we do opening night? (laughs) And he said, yes. And I said, well, how about we do (laughs) some educational screenings and make this a a banner event? And, you know, we do need to film more. Is there a time limit? And he said, honestly, just do whatever you guys need to do. Do what you feel is right. And for a film festival to say that, that's never happened to us before. It's unheard of. They were so accommodating and have been such great partners. I mean, they just agreed to be our fiscal sponsor, which is unheard of for a short film, and they've never done it before, but that's gonna allow us to raise funds and help the local film economy, as well as raising funds for our impact campaign. How did you hear about Bully's story in the first place, and what made you wanna make Mm -hmm. a documentary out of it? Well, I actually took a surf lesson from Bully, and that's (laughs) how I met him. My best friend from college, Megan Lee, who lives on the West Side now, invited me to a a mom's group during COVID to take a lesson from Bully. And so that's the first time I met him. But once I found out that he was doing free surf camps for local kids and then also engaging a lot of the homeless kids around the island, that's when the light went off because we make films for a living. We make documentaries, we tell stories, and a lot of the stories we tell are about these characters who we call wounded healers, you know, people who've been through their own challenges in order to get where they are, in order to make a big difference. And Bully has been through so much in his life, and it's the reason that he's able to reach so many people and reach the kids because they they have his trust. You know, he's been through it. So, you know, my husband and I, our company, Inflatable Film, it's, you know, it's our whole mission is to find these these impact stories 
make these impact films about really engaging, complicated characters. And Bully is, is definitely one of those people. So we showed up the first day at surf camp just to kind of explore the idea. And we knew that first day that we were making a film. One of the things that makes Bully's story so compelling is how he was able to overcome the mistakes he made in the past. And in the film, he says, maybe the struggles he went through prepared him for the role he's in now. Can you Absolutely. talk about how that materializes in the relationships with the children he teaches? Well, because Bully has been through you know, addiction and he, he was homeless when he was younger, he fought a lot. He got bullied in school. You know, these are all issues that local kids and all kids are dealing with right now. So when he talks to them about being an upstander and not a bystander, he's talking from his own experience. You know, when he talks to them about drugs and alcohol abuse and living on the streets, he's speaking from his own experience, speaking from his heart. And that's why he's able to make a difference. I mean, you, you trust someone who's been through it and... The kids trust him, you know, because a lot of the kids here on Maui are being bullied right now because they don't have a home. Sadly, they don't have a home. Their school burned down. They're all in different schools, temporary living situations. And there's a lot of bullying happening right now. So Bully speaks to them about that. But he's, you know, he's really speaking from his own experience, his own wounds <laughs> and what he's had to do to, to heal that trauma for himself. I think your film does a great job of capturing the impact that he has. And as you're Thank filming you. and interacting with the community and those who know Bully, what was your sense about how they feel about him? I think humans are complicated. I think people often want to put folks like Bully up on a pedestal and, and say he, he's the be-all, end-all. And he's such a powerful person. He's such a powerful human and a powerful role model, but humans are complicated and everybody has so many sides to them. And I think Bully himself has evolved a ton and just since we've known him in the last couple of years, but even in the last 10 years, 20 years, I mean, we're all constantly evolving, but he, he does a lot of work on himself. He meditates, he listens to a lot of, you know, self-help if that's what you want to call it, podcasts. He's always trying to be better. And that's how I know him. And I think that's how the community knows him. Even though he's come from kind of a rough past, I think COVID changed a lot of things for him. It changed a lot of things for us too. But for him, it really, he made a huge pivot with his life and his business during COVID. And he's just constantly evolving. He's constantly getting better and wiser. When you look at the trajectory of Bully's life, do you think that there's anything Lahaina residents or the Lahaina community as a whole can take away from his life that might give them some hope for the future? It's so hard because everybody on Maui is going through some kind of trauma right now. If you didn't live in Lahaina, you live on Maui and we all feel it. It's so heavy and intense. And Bully has a certain amount of resilience that is unique, but he has hard days, just like all of us. And resilience is, is not for everybody. It's hard, it's really tough, but he's, 
doing what he can to take care of himself and his friends and his loved ones and his family. And I think the best lesson that can be taken from that is just to do whatever you can for the people around you and try and be a kind person, try and be an upstander. If you see something happening that you don't think is right to speak out and to be involved in the community and to just share love as much as humanly possible. I know that Uncle Bully Surf School screened at the recent Hawaii International Film Festival. When will audiences be able to see it again? Well, we are trying to set up some more community screenings around all of the islands, especially here on Maui. We sold out our two screenings from HIF, so we we do want to do more screenings. And I'm just looking for screening hosts and venues. So hopefully folks will get in touch with us about that. But we're also now raising money for an impact campaign and impact program that we want to do all over the mainland and internationally starting next year. So with any luck, (laughs) we'll be able to book theatrical venues and community screenings and screen the film, but also do director talkbacks, bring Bully with us whenever we can, maybe do some community events alongside of the screenings. And so we have a long distribution journey for this film that's really just getting started. I imagine that If we can do community screenings and theatrical next year, it'll be available online towards the end of next year or the following year. Online is kind of our last window. I mean, it's it's the Wild West right now, so you you never know what's going to happen. But Netflix, if you're listening, we're ready to talk. Leah, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's really great to have this conversation. I appreciate it. And that was filmmaker Leah Warshawski, co-director of the documentary short film Uncle Bully's Surf School. She was talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to more information about the film on the conversation page of our website later today. that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we plan to catch up with Governor Josh Green. Got questions for him? Color talk back line this afternoon, 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And remember, you can find the Conversation Podcast on our website or wherever you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.